Hello, and welcome to the On-Call Consults in Less Than 10 Minutes series on ENT in a Nutshell, a compliment to Headmere's online survival guide. I'm your host, Patrick Kiesling, and today we are joined by Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan, a fellowship-trained pediatric otolaryngologist. In this episode, we will cover noisy breathing consults in children. Let's jump right in. Noisy breathing can take several forms, and characterizing the sound can determine the diagnosis. Stertor can be used to describe any noisy breathing from vibration of tissues above the larynx. Strider refers specifically to laryngeal or tracheal obstruction and is described as a high-pitched, musical, or harsh sound and may occasionally be confused with wheezing. It is also important to characterize at what point during the breathing cycle the sound occurs. Inspiratory strider usually originates from the supraglottic or glottic larynx, while biphasic strider generally occurs due to pathology in the subglottis or proximal trachea. Expiratory strider results from more distal obstruction, such as in the distal trachea, carina, or main stem bronchi. However, this is not a strict rule and many exceptions occur. It's therefore important to have a broad differential diagnosis when evaluating children with noisy breathing. Today, we will discuss a broad differential for noisy breathing, but the focus will be on laryngomalacia as the most common cause of strider in pediatric patients. Dr. Balakrishnan, can you give us a differential diagnosis, including some can't-miss diagnoses for these children? Sure thing, Patrick. So the differential diagnosis for noisy breathing in a child, and especially in a young baby, uh, requires that you consider all levels of the airway from the nasal cavity all the way down to the bronchi. And a lot of conditions can mimic each other, so you do have to keep this broad differential in mind. Some things that can cause significant airway compromise or that are potentially dangerous that might cause noisy breathing are anatomic problems of the jaw, such as retrognathia or micrognathia, leading to things like Roban sequence, obstructive lesions of the airway, such as volecular cysts, lingual thyroglossal duct cyst or lingual thyroid, and things like laryngeal web, congenital subglottic stenosis or congenital tracheal stenosis, subglottic cysts or hemangiomas, things like that. Then we have to think about extrinsic factors like vascular rings, other vascular compression of the airway, masses or other lesions compressing the airway. Also worth considering structural anomalies of the airway that can cause both airway and swallowing difficulties, for instance, laryngotracheoesophageal clefts, traumatic causes, foreign bodies, caustic ingestion are all really important, uh, and then infectious things like croup, epiglottitis, tracheitis, retropharyngeal abscess. But it's generally a very broad differential uh, when you're starting out seeing a patient. What are some risk factors we should be aware of in these patients that would predispose them to be more likely to be exhibiting noisy breathing? Some common risk factors, uh, prematurity is one, anatomic anomalies either in isolation or related to syndromes. So for instance, Roban sequence, which is associated with a variety of syndromes, charge, Treacher Collins, Beckwith-Wiedemann are just some common examples. Other chromosomal anomalies that can do it would be things like trisomy 21 or 22q11 microdeletion which, for example, is associated with laryngeal web. Prior history of intubation, including multiple intubations, long duration of intubation, or intubation with a large tube. And then actually some esophageal processes, like reflux and eosinophilic esophagitis, can cause airway inflammation. How would you describe the presentation for these patients? It uh, varies quite broadly, to be honest, depending on the age of the child, their comorbidities, and how severe the problem is. But These can sometimes present very acutely at birth in the case of severe airway compromise, and sometimes can present gradually over the first weeks or months of life. In the case of laryngomalacia, which as you mentioned is the most common reason that babies have noisy breathing, it typically will present in the first few weeks of life. Symptoms, you know, we all think of respiratory distress, so things like 
strider, retractions. If the obstruction is a little higher in the upper airway, then stertor or snoring sounds can be part of it. You can see cyanosis and poor oxygen saturations, though often families don't have ways to test that at home. You can have difficulty feeding, including both swallowing difficulty and fatigue with feeding. You can have poor growth and failure to thrive. And you can have worsened symptoms during sleep as well. In the case of laryngomalacia, sometimes they can be associated with reflux symptoms as well. When you see these patients, what parts of the history are important to focus on? Definitely the symptoms, as we just talked about. And it's worth being systematic about those and thinking about the different functions of the larynx and the airway. So what are the breathing symptoms? What are the swallowing or feeding symptoms? And are there any voice symptoms as well? It's worth asking about a history of term versus premature birth, previous airway instrumentation or intervention. It's worth asking him how old the child was when they developed symptoms and how things have evolved over time. Worth asking about whether there's any positional variation. So classically, laryngomalacia is worst when the child is lying supine. It's worth asking whether the breathing changes when the child is agitated or crying, when they're feeding, or when they're active. Those are some common things. And then, of course, depending on what else you're thinking about, then you can target questions, for instance, about foreign bodies or infections or trauma or whatever. It is worth always asking about symptoms of significant respiratory compromise. So retractions, cyanosis, apnea, bruies or brief resolving unexplained events, previous need for CPR, and poor weight gain or failure to thrive are all important things to ask about. It's worth asking about other characteristics of syndromes or chromosomal anomalies if you suspect those. Again, we talked about intubation, reflux symptoms, and spitting up. And in some kids, it's worth asking about a history of any cardiac or thoracic surgery, because if you're worried about, for instance, vocal fold immobility, that may clue you in. And what are some important supplies to make sure that we bring with us to these consultations? Personal protective equipment is certainly important. So eye protection, mask, gloves, and gown as appropriate. A headlight is very helpful. A tongue blade, though you want to avoid using that on children with epiglottitis, for instance. And a stethoscope is, of course, very helpful. Uh, A flexible fiber optic endoscope is also very helpful and in my mind is essentially a part of the physical exam. And there are different sizes and styles available of that. And moving on to physical exam, how would you recommend we approach this? So first thing is check your ABCs. You walk in the room, you can look at the child and, you know, make sure that they look like they're not in distress. Make sure that they're actually perfusing and breathing and moving air. You may hear them cry, so you can immediately assess their voice. And on first glance, you can actually get a ton of information in terms of their size, their skin tone, which can be harder to tell in children with more darkly pigmented skin. So then you want to look at things like their nail beds. The breathing, you want to look at how fast they're breathing and whether that's appropriate for their age. Are there any noises and whether that occurs during inspiration, expiration, or both? What's their level of distress and work of breathing? Are they using accessory muscles? Are they flaring their nostrils? Are they retracting? because retraction is essentially greater effort of breathing. Look at whether there's any positional change, supine, prone, sitting upright. You want to see if there's any change when they're feeding or crying, if if possible. If you can get vitals in your clinic, it's very worth doing, or in the ER, for instance, it's very worth doing. So oxygen saturation is great, uh, but that can be a late sign of decompensation. So heart rate and respiratory rate are also important. Temperature, of course, in case there's an infectious process. Um, A good head and neck exam is important. Uh, You can check nasal cavity patency with fogging of a mirror, whether the airflow causes a little piece of tissue to flutter. Speculum exam. Oral cavity exam, again, looking at the tongue. What's the mandible and mid-face like? What's the palate like? Is there any web or membrane in the posterior pharynx? Is there a mass? In some babies, you can actually see the epiglottis on the oral exam as well. 
a good chest auscultation for both uh, heart and lungs is really important. And it's worth practicing that. And in some babies, it's hard to hear the left breath sounds because of the noise of the heart. So it's worth listening on the back. And then flexible laryngoscopy, as I mentioned, is really, I think, an essential part of the exam. And so it is worth getting help, uh, somebody to help hold the child. You can coach the parents or nursing staff on how to help you with that. It's really important to set expectations with the parents and let them know that the child is likely to get very angry when you do this, but that it's important. And you can, even if you can put the video up on a screen so the parents can see what you're doing as you do it, that's great. It's great to be able to record it so you can play it back slowly for the parents afterwards and show them what you found as well. And of course, show it with, to your attendings and staff as well. When you do the flexible laryngoscopy, you want to be systematic about it, right? You're going through the nose and going down to the larynx. And so in my mind, I just follow an anatomic approach and start with the nose. What's the nasal airway like? Turbinates, septum, is there any sign of piriform aperture stenosis? As you head farther back, what are the adenoids like? What's the palate? Nasopharynx, oropharynx, what do those look like? What do the tonsils look like? Then you look at your tongue base, your lingual tonsils, your vollecula. You can look at your supraglottis and uh, you know epiglottis, AE folds, arytenoids. And in laryngomalacia, you're going to see that the epiglottis is often omega shape or curled. The areopiglottic folds are often tight and the arytenoids are tipped forward. And you may have both static arytenoid prolapse. In other words, even with exhalation, they're tipped in. Or you may have dynamic prolapse or collapse inward during inspiration. Sometimes it can be quite hard to get a view of the vocal folds, but you should try. Though in babies, you don't want to get too close and provoke a laryngospasm. You want to look at the postcricoid area for any evidence of mass or other abnormality there as well. If you can see the cords, you want to check for mobility. And that, okay, you know, you, you can often get a good look at the subglottis as well, but not in every baby. And then once we've completed the history and physical exam, briefly, what further diagnostic workup uh, should we pursue? You know, the... A full discussion of all the different possibilities is definitely outside the scope of this quick consult podcast, but things to think about would be largely driven by symptoms. So if you think that there's a structural abnormality of the airway, then a more thorough evaluation of the airway under anesthesia, for instance, with rigid airway endoscopy or flexible bronchoscopy may be worthwhile, sleep endoscopy as well. If you think that swallow problems are predominant or part of the issue, then an instrumental swallow evaluation with either a functional endoscopic evaluation of swallow or video fluoroscopic swallow study can be helpful. If you have concern for vocal fold paralysis, particularly if it's bilateral, then an MRI of the brainstem to rule out a Chiari malformation is great. Sleep study can be useful in some cases, but that's not available immediately in all situations. Genetic screening is kind of similar. It can be really helpful, but not a quick result. Cardiac workup with echo and EKG can be very helpful. And then depending on further concerns, you can decide how else to proceed. And then when considering laryngomalacia, how would we approach treatment in these patients once that diagnosis has been made? So if the patient has active or pending respiratory compromise, then you want to stabilize that airway and you use whatever your airway algorithm is to stabilize and ensure a safe airway and ensure adequate oxygenation and ventilation. So ABCs first, always. Beyond that though, the treatment depends on the severity of the disease. And severity of the disease is driven largely by symptoms, not so much by how it looks on the scope. I see the scope as sort of a binary yes, no, does the child have evidence of laryngomalacia? And then beyond that, it's really the symptom severity. So mild disease, those children have inspiratory strider, no obvious secondary lesion, no difficulty feeding, no difficulty with growth. And those kids, you can just observe them and they tend to outgrow the problem by age 12 to 18 months. The kids with moderate disease will have some feeding difficulties, coughing and choking, dysphagia symptoms. They may have reflux or regurgitation symptoms. And those kids are often managed with acid suppression therapy. Uh, There are some folks who prefer thickening feeds instead of medical acid suppression. Both are viable options. 
you can consider a formal swallow evaluation and often you can just combine that with the diagnostic scope you're doing in the first place, depending on the circumstance. But often formal swallow evaluation is not really needed because if you treat the laryngomalacia, things tend to get better. If you start to see that those kids are falling off the growth curve or having worse symptoms, then you may have to escalate to doing surgical intervention. And those kids, along the kids with severe disease, end up needing surgery. And so severe disease would be things like apneic episodes, bruise, cyanosis, failure to thrive, pulmonary hypertension, core pulmonality, severe OSA on a sleep study, things like that. Those kids, you're generally going to start acid suppression and do a swallow eval and maybe thicken their feeds, but you're going to need to go ahead with surgical intervention as well. And that involves microlaryngoscopy and bronchoscopy, as well as a supraglottoplasty. And how should we approach follow-up in these kids? Totally depends on the underlying problem. Uh, for laryngomalacia, we tend to follow them out. I at least personally tend to follow them out until they're about a year old, and I see that the symptoms have really resolved and they don't need further intervention. But beyond that, you want to make sure, again, that they're fulfilling those critical airway functions, breathing, voice, and swallow, that they're growing, and that they're able to fulfill all of their other necessary life functions as a baby. Thanks, Dr. Christian. That concludes Noisy Breathing in Pediatric Patients. Thanks for listening.